All right, welcome to this second week of this Equipping Hour series. I'm going to get us started with a word of prayer. God, thank you so much for your word that uh, is clear, your word that is upright and just and righteous and true uh, in, in everything it says, every single word will be proven true in the end, even where we lack understanding, where we lack wrong, uh, right motives, when we approach your word, where your word has been reviled and scorned by many, in the end, God, your word will be justified. And so help us now as we turn our attention there to take confidence in what you have said, to love what you have said, to consider thoroughly what you have said for ourselves, that where your word indicts us, we would uh, embrace conviction. Where it comforts us, we would be caused to rejoice. Where your word intends to challenge and correct and strengthen, I pray that we would receive all those things as you intend, all for your glory and the good of this church, as well as those with whom we interact uh, outside of uh, this building and family members, co-workers, friends. God, I pray that we would be made more useful ultimately for the gospel and for your glorious name, that you would use us even now as we look into what your word says about justice, that we would be trained under your, your teaching, that we would be attentive, and that you would sanctify us, making us look more like your son for having been here this morning. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, welcome to part two of our racism, social justice, and the woke movement series. Uh, we discussed last week the sufficiency and clarity of God's word to address these things. Uh, we, because we have God's word, not because we're anything important or special or wise in and of ourselves, but because of what God's word is, because of what it says, because of its very nature, it is clear and it is sufficient. And so we shouldn't, we don't need to be afraid to step into uh, these subjects. It's truth. We looked at a couple passages last week that talk about the clarity and sufficiency of God's word from Psalm 19 and Proverbs 2. And we said that because of what God's word says about itself, uh, because his commandments are pure, enlightening the eyes, uh, because if we engage in a diligent, humble pursuit of wisdom, Proverbs 2 verse 9 says, the one who is doing that will understand righteousness and justice and equity every good path. And so, so long as we are humbly, diligently pursuing God's wisdom in his word, then we have God's promise that his wisdom is accessible to us. And so with that being the case, the 
proclaimed uh, impediments to clarity, things like uh, skin, uh, being of a, a, a certain ethnicity, uh, being of a certain cultural background, having a certain social location, if you will, uh, possessing certain privileges, if that's the case, reading certain Christian authors who are biblically solid, having attended a certain seminary, finding yourself in a certain type of church, whatever that may be, whether those things are defined primarily by uh, white culture or black culture or Asian culture or Hispanic culture, whatever, the one who is gazing intently into the clear word of God can expect to have his eyes enlightened. And so those other factors are non-issues. They are, they are uh, what I call imaginary impediments. They're not real impediments to understanding what God says about racism, justice, etc. And so where we fail to understand God's wisdom, we can't blame our lack of understanding on those factors, right? Um, we must attribute any lack of understanding, wherever we have it, not to those things, but really to our failure, uh, as to use again Proverbs 2, the words described there, our failure to receive, treasure up, make our ear attentive, incline our heart to, call out for, raise our voice for, seek and search for God's wisdom in God's word. Where we lack understanding, we fail to do that adequately. If we diligently and humbly pursue God's wisdom, in God's word regarding issues of race and justice, then nothing, nothing can prevent us from having the right opinion about these things. And that's amazing news. That's such good news that we don't have to rely on our own resources. All we need is what God has given us. God has made his magnificent wisdom available to us in his crystal clear word. We just have to know it and believe what it says. Now, there are some who have claimed that whiteness, white culture, white privilege, uh, America's dark history, etc., that these things are what prevent people, even people who are doing the very things that we talked about with God's word, from understanding the current state of racism and oppression and justice in America. Uh, the idea seems to be that you are a part of this group of people, and therefore, for these reasons, let me tell you why you don't understand. Let me tell you why your culture, etc., isn't an impediment and why you lack understanding on these issues. And then people go on who, who make that claim to make various appeals to sociological categories, uh, things like unconscious bias, pattern matching, identity politics, socialization, uh, they, they make appeals to those to help people then gain clarity where they think that they lack it. Uh, this really is one blind guide leading the blind, is what that is. God grants true clarity through his word alone and not through any other means. This is the place from which clarity comes. So I want to pick up where I left off last week and just describe for you a couple sinister advantages of obscurity. 
sinister advantages of obscurity. If God's word is so crystal clear, then why are so many professing Christians embracing these unbiblical ideas? Even claiming that these other things are why Bible-believing Christians don't understand. Why are many white Christians blaming their personal upbringing, their social locations for their lack of clarity? Why are so many minorities claiming that white privilege or white seminaries and churches are the cause of people's lack of understanding on these issues? That's what I want to suggest two advantages to embracing these claims. Because you might think, why in the world would someone want to be unclear? Why would they accept that as a sufficient explanation for why they don't understand? There are actually benefits to making that claim. And so the, the, the two reasons, and there are others, um, maybe perhaps more innocent than this, but these are at least two reasons that you should be aware of as you are uh, encountering these things. Uh, and they come down to, to, to this, absolution and authority. Absolution and, and authority. Um, absolution, to be formally absolved or not deserving of punishment. In other words, the person who has practiced or perpetuated racism can actually avoid being blamed for it because, well, I'm, I'm just so white. <laughs> I didn't understand. Or it was my white upbringing. Or I'm just so privileged, I didn't see it. Or I was uninformed because my church doesn't really address those issues because we lack diversity in our body. Notice that none of these factors is the fault of the person who can't see clearly, right? My church leaders don't teach on that. I was brought up in this cat, and I was just born into this family. I was born into this set of cultural circumstances. If I can lay the blame for my blindness on these issues at the feet of someone else or something else that I can't control, then I don't have to take responsibility for my lack of understanding, and I'm absolved of any real guilt. One uh, prominent example of this, uh, a few years back, Matt Chandler released a video um, on just addressing white privilege. And it's interesting, as I've, I've gone back and listened to this video several times, the passive language that he uses. As he's describing why he's just had this awakening, he's, he's uh, finally come to realize uh, some things about, that he wasn't understanding about racism. He uses language in, in describing the kind of home that he grew up in, a, a two-parent home, hard-working dad, uh, where he was taught, son, you can be successful if you just work really hard. He's, a, he's <laughs> calling those things white. Because that's supposed to be better. <laughs> but, but the language that he uses, he says, uh, this is a quote, 
what happens in that kind of upbringing is there were some lenses put over my eyes. We, speaking of those in predominant culture, we've been shaped by this invisible force. See, not I put lenses over my eyes, not I shape myself, but no, I've been shaped. I, uh, lenses were put over my eyes. That's uh, an attempt to absolve himself, and lots of people have made similar claims. I'm not really responsible for this. This is something that has happened to me, not something that I have done. Um, it sounds sort of like Adam in the garden. It was the white skin you gave me, God. It was the cultural nuances, the cultural details that you put me in, God. Proverbs 19.3 says that when a, when a man's folly brings his way ruin, his heart rages against Yahweh. <laughs> when, when you are seeking to blame shift, you put the blame on things outside of your control, which inevitably, at some point, blames God because who's responsible for what you can't control? Ultimately, God, if he's sovereign. And so this is, this is not, uh, even, even though I don't think people are sitting up at night wondering, man, how can I blame God and not myself? How can I attribute lack of clarity to God's word rather than me? I don't think people are losing sleep trying to do that, right? But if Proverbs 20 verse 5 is true, The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. There are motives and intentions, desires and purposes in the heart that are like deep waters. They have to be discerned, and that takes work and effort and a clean conscience, a pure heart, a sincere faith. And so still, it, it is a sinister advantage. It's a subtle way, actually, of satisfying a group of people who have a grievance against you, while at the same time shifting the blame to someone or something else outside of your control. It's avoiding real personal responsibility for a lack of clarity. You should be aware of that as you hear those complaints. And the other reason is, is authority. Turn to John chapter 7. This has been incredibly helpful as I've listened to this conversation happening. John 7 is just a helpful chapter uh, dealing with justice. We'll, we'll revisit this a little bit next week, some principles to draw from this. You would, you would benefit if you, you familiarize yourself with John 5, 6, and 7 in this conversation about, about justice. As, the, as Jesus has been doing ministry publicly and the Pharisees have felt 
now for some chapters, their power and influence over the people slipping away. They, they recognize what Jesus is saying. Jesus is so clear that they recognize, according to 5.18, he's calling himself God by identifying himself as God's son. He's uh, breaking their particular preferences for the Sabbath. And so they are pursuing his life. They're, they want to kill him. Look at John chapter 7. We'll start in verse 14. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not my own. This is his explanation for how he's so learned without having the formal education in the scriptures of the day. My teaching is not my own, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of, of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. Verse 18, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Verse 18, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. That's the principle that Jesus is laying down to explain his own clarity on the things that he's been speaking about. The one who claims authority for himself, in other words. The one who doesn't go to God's word to say God's word is clear, we need to know how to think on this. Maybe someone says, I understand this biblically. Let me open God's word for you and um, help resolve your lack of understanding. The person who doesn't do that and instead speaks from their own expertise claims to be granting you clarity based on factors that they understand outside of God's word, that is an attempt at self-glorification. Why is that the case? Well, if I don't need God to give me clarity... If I possess understanding independent of him, then all glory be to me and not to God. So when I can convince someone that based on factors that have nothing to do with the clarity of God's word, that I've gained clarity from somewhere else, and now I try and bring them into submission under those same Factors, hey, I've got the right culture. I've got the right experiences as a, for example, black man in America. I've got the right history, and I understand these things in such a way that now I can require you to submit to those same things and, and then have clarity. 
Well, guess where you have to go for your answers now? Irony of ironies, me. Me. And in that way, I gain authority and control over your conscience. You don't know the history. You haven't read the books outside of Scripture. You don't know the right people. You don't have the right associations. I have authority now over you if you agree with me that these are the things that can give you clarity. That is sinister, and and it is self-glorification. Regardless of how many hours or how much sleep someone has lost trying to plot this, right, the human heart doesn't need time to figure out how to glorify itself. It does it naturally, as, as easily as breathing, And so you actually have to be on guard. We have to be on guard to not go this way, to not follow these these reasonings. Um, We won't look at this, but you can write down Psalm 119, verses 33 and 34, where the psalmist actually, uh, in his prayer to God, demonstrates that authority and clarity always go hand in hand. Whoever's the most clear possesses uh, or should be listened to. If you're the most clear on the room, in, in this room, on an issue, you should be listened to, right? And the psalmist actually prays uh, something similar when he pleads for God to give him understanding so that he can submit to his word. If you can impart understanding, then you should be obeyed. You're the expert. Why wouldn't you be listened to? I just want to encourage us, Grace Bible Church, that where we see this happening, it can be intimidating uh, if you feel like you haven't given sufficient thought to these things. And there are lots of people with loud voices telling you how to think about these issues, um, calling you, calling for your obedience in some area of life, calling for you to do something, take some action. That can be intimidating if you feel like, wow, I haven't even thought about these things. Maybe they're right. Maybe I should listen. Uh, We need to be confident Uh, firm and standing on God's word in the face of these issues. And where you don't know, search the scriptures. Gain clarity. You have God's promise that you can gain clarity in his word. He will enlighten your eyes. This is what his word does. Has it not done that for you in the past, in other areas of your life where you've lacked understanding? Certainly, if you've read the Bible for very much time at all, spent time walking with the Lord and gazing into his word, it has enlightened your eyes. And so we can can trust it. We can trust God to continue to sanctify us in whatever ways we need to be, um, even in these issues, in these areas. So um, I want to turn our our attention now to uh, a definition of justice, because if God's word is clear, If it is clear on what justice is and what we must be doing, then we actually need to know what is justice and what we must be doing 
to live a, a just life pleasing to the Lord. There are lots of ideas about what justice is, even uh, people who are talking about the Bible and talking about justice. They might be describing justice and appealing to certain passages of Scripture, certain ideas, certain doctrines. It's always wise to, to check like the Bereans, to search the Scriptures for yourselves to see if these things are so. In Scripture, there are a couple words that get translated, at least in our English Bibles, as uh, just or justice. Uh, one word is tzedek. Tzedek, it's a, a Hebrew word that sometimes gets translated righteousness or in other contexts, justice. Let me just show you this in Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19. Verse 15. And depending on what translation you're using, I'll try and distinguish the translations I'm pulling this from. Uh, but reading from the ESV, Leviticus 19.15, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Righteousness, that's the Hebrew word tzedek there. Righteousness. Uh, and it gets translated righteous, righteousness, uh, to practice what is right before the Lord is, is what that word primarily means. Uh, in, the, in the NASB, it's, it's the word fairly translated at the end of the, word, the, the verse, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly, Sedek. Um, at other times, it's translated just. So just to, if you flip over to Deuteronomy 16, Deuteronomy 16, verse 20. In the ESV and NASB, this word gets translated justice. So, 1920, or excuse me, 1620. Justice and only justice you shall pursue that you may live and possess the land which Yahweh your God is giving you. Same word, Sedek. Um, it's almost, in, in certain ways, unhelpful that this gets translated uh, differently. Because it doesn't mean anything, anything different than what we just saw in Leviticus, righteousness. It's a, a right and upright, approved way of treating people, uh, an approved way of living life, uh, approved by God, that is. 
It is what is right as God sees it. Uh, one writer actually lamented this, this variety of English words that gets used in translating Sedek. Uh, because of our justice sort of introduces a, a legal, forensic nuance into the word that uh, for English readers may seem to be a difference, but in the Hebrew there is no difference. Um, it, it, it means the exact same thing. Um, and you can usually determine by the context uh, what's being referred to if it's, if it's any real meaningful difference. And, and as, as we see in these verses, um, there's, there's no distinction to see there, even though the English word righteous and justice are used. So all that to say, there, there, there is no distinction whatsoever in, in that particular word. Sometimes righteousness and justice in the scriptures are exactly the same, and it just takes a little bit of care in reading to discern whether they're the same thing in view. Um, the more common word, though, to refer to justice, at least in the Old Testament, is mishpat. Mishpat, that's the more common Hebrew word that gets translated justice or at times just this word shows up in a variety of ways in translation. Um, it gets translated in our English Bibles, justice, just, rule, plan, court, judgment, decision, uh, due, as in what, is, what someone is due, uh, at times deserving, or someone's right. It's a more common word that actually does take on a, a separate flavor um, then, then Sedek, the word we just, we just saw. But still, it's not a, it's not a complicated uh, word. It's not necessarily complicated to understand. Um, even as I was doing, doing the work on this word, sort of backing into the study, right, having heard and read too much in extra-biblical literature, and so there's a variety of opinions already being introduced to my mind, and then sort of backing into the study to look at the word. It's, it's uh, far less complicated than it seemed at first. Even with that variety of ways it gets translated, I think that it essentially comes down, the word mishpat, to this. If you were defining uh, this word and wanted to boil down all of the uses, uh, the majority of them, certainly, to one succinct way to think about this, one definition, here is what I would say it is. Mishpat is to grant or withhold, reward or punish in keeping with the standards set forth by the law. To grant or withhold, reward or punish. So it's not just giving, it's not just judgment in a withholding sense or punishment, but it's to grant or withhold. It can mean to reward or punish in keeping with the standards set forth by the law. That's mishpat. It's to be equitable, fair. Um, it's the word that, in, that we read in Proverbs 2.9. Both these words are used in Proverbs 2.9. Um, then you will understand 
Sedek, righteousness, and Mishpat, justice, and equity, every good path. You'll notice that even when, even when there's a distinction in the text between righteousness and justice, you still have to go to God's wisdom to understand them, right? Automatically, for believers, that takes off the table going to secular sources to understand righteousness and justice and equity. Black Lives Matter does not understand righteousness or justice or equity or any good path. So, the, so Christians cannot align themselves with that organization. Unbelievers don't understand because they do, have not yet embraced God's wisdom. They have not engaged in what Solomon described in Proverbs 2 as a diligent, humble pursuit of God's wisdom. Therefore, they do not understand righteousness or justice or e equity. So we should not think that we are pursuing justice on their terms. It can't be the case. That narrows the focus or, or provides at least a, a significant answer to what's happening in the woke movement. The church, people in the church who have embraced this movement are pursuing justice just like the world. They're actually being applauded by the world. Uh, Well-known leaders in evangelicalism are being propped up by secular organizations and uh, liberal news outlets as being models for what they're doing in their church to bring about racial reconciliation, pursuing racial justice, and so on. If the world can approve of your pursuit of justice, the way you go after justice, then it's not God's preferred means. It's not the justice that God's talking about. So mishpat, to grant or withhold, reward, or punish in keeping with the standard of the law is what we're after in understanding justice. Um, it's sad. Uh, somebody who's contributed much to the discussion and the instruction of uh, evangelicals broadly is Tim Keller. In his book, Generous Justice, he includes an entire chapter on how the church and how Christians can pursue justice validly <laughs> with unbelievers and secular organizations. He's got clearly the wrong definition, but his writings and others, but he's played a significant role in informing the church how to do this well. Um, I would actually recommend, if you, if you go to uh, GIBC's website, GIBCJupiter.org, John Anderson um, taught a phenomenal lesson critiquing Tim Keller's uh, book, Center Church. It's sort of a manual for how to do inner city missions or missions to the city. Um, and he answers and just provides a, a phenomenal 
apologetic against what's wrong with that kind of thinking. But this is what we're after, uh, and this is what we're talking about when we're talking about God's justice. God's law sets the standard for true justice. Justice requires that people be granted certain privileges under God's law. God's law requires that people be given certain rights, and God's law requires that certain things are even withheld from people as well. In God's economy, this is right and good. God's law requires that those who do good are rewarded for doing good, and also that those who do evil are punished for choosing sin, as Smed recently taught us in Romans 13. I say recently, that was probably like a year ago, almost. It feels recent. Where, where is 2020? Um, and so Mishpat includes all of these things. Um, the, the woke movement's idea of justice, you rarely hear uh, punishment against the people they deem underprivileged and underserved. underserved. You rarely hear of rights and privileges being withheld from minority groups. That's because they don't have a definition of God's justice, and they're defining justice on their own authority and thereby seeking their own glory. Point two in your outline, a description of this justice that we're talking about. If you, if you were to trace out the various contexts and uses of that Hebrew word mishpat in the Old Testament. Here is four qualities, four characteristics that would provide a, a general summary of what you find in God's justice. Impartiality for everyone, rewards for the upright, punishment for the wicked, and provision for the needy. God's justice includes all of those things. And I want to just look at some examples of that. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 17. So first, impartiality. You shall not show partiality in judgment. That's the standard. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not fear man, for the judgment is God's. The case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. This is Moses recounting the, the standard that he said or what he communicated to the people when they became too great a burden, and he established, he raised up other judges, just men. That was the standard. Don't prefer people. Don't change the standard of the law. You give them or you withhold whatever the law requires based on the merits of the particular case. And you don't take the reputation of the person um, you don't take the privileges or disadvantages of the person in question into account. That's God's standard for justice. M 
partiality. Deuteronomy 27, 19 communicates the same thing. It didn't matter who you were in Israel. The law applied to everybody equally. Deuteronomy 27, 19. Cursed is he who distorts the justice due an alien, orphan, and widow. And all the people shall say amen. This is what the entire nation was supposed to agree to, is that even if you didn't possess status in Israel, you were a foreigner, an outsider coming in, you were an orphan, didn't have parental representation in court, or a widow, same, same issue. It doesn't matter. Everybody is granted equality, impartial impartiality under the law, equality in that sense. This is not the same, however, as ensuring equality of, uh, that everyone everywhere gets the same amount of everything, right? Not, not the same as equality of outcomes, the same amount of money, the same amount of privilege, the same amount of opportunity. That's not what God is telling them to ensure. If a woman loses her husband or if an orphan, right, a child has lost his parents, he already doesn't have the same equality of outcomes in that sense. He doesn't have the same privileges as somebody who has both parents or a woman who has a husband, etc. And this is why it was a special category of people in Israel who needed to be uh, singled out, if you will, to say don't deny them justice under the law. Be fair. This is... Uh, to ensure equality of outcomes, which is, we'll talk more about that in a couple weeks um, when we talk about disparities and inequality, but to ensure equality of outcomes, for example, to make sure that people are equally represented in a, in a workplace, to make sure that people groups are equally represented in a university, that actually requires unjust partial practices. <laughs> like affirmative action. Laws that require authorities to give preferential treatment to people based on the color of their skin are actually encouraging racism. That's the definition of racism. And so God's law forbade that kind of partiality. That's not just. Another quality of God's justice is rewards for the upright and punishment for the wicked. We'll see both of these in, in Deuteronomy 25. Or actually, if we, if we uh, yeah, starting at Deuteronomy 25, verse 1. Here's God's description of punishment for the wicked and rewards for the upright. If there is a dispute between men they, and they go to court and the judges decide their case and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, then it shall be if the man, if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, the judge 
shall then make him lie down and be beaten in his presence with the number of stripes according to his guilt. He may beat him 40 times, but no more, so that he does not beat him with many more stripes than these, and your brother is not degraded in your eyes. Verse 4, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. There you have both principles back to back. The wicked is condemned and punished. In verse 4, a proverb in the midst of the law, you shall not muzzle the ox while it is threshing. So the person who, uh, this, is, this principle is a reward for the upright. The person who is industrious, who works hard and labors, actually gets to partake of the fruit of his labor. That's just. Just like an ox who is threshing in a mill shouldn't be muzzled, but got to eat of the very work that he was doing. Um, Paul applies this, uh, this, this principle in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 10 to speak about paying the laborer his, his wages. And he, and he has the commentary, this God is not concerned about oxen, is he? It's, no, he's not actually making a statement about oxen, but about paying the laborer his wages. So punishment for the wicked and rewards for the upright. Um, when's the last time you heard someone in favor of uh, the world's version of justice say, if somebody doesn't work, he shouldn't eat? Paul says that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. He, he shouldn't live off the government. He shouldn't live off the backs of taxpayers who are working. That's a biblical principle of justice, that if a man is unwilling to work, then he should starve. And he wouldn't actually starve because he'd get to work and his stomach was, would work for him, as Proverbs says. A man's stomach urges him on. One more principle is provision for the needy. In God's economy, this was a gracious, wise, supremely wise standard of God's justice. Provision for the needy. Uh, just back up a few verses to Deuteronomy 19. Here's one place that this is articulated. You can even write down Exodus 22, verses 21 through 27. If you're taking notes, Exodus 22, verses 21 through 27. Here's what Moses writes in Deuteronomy 24, verse 19. When you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. That sheaf will be for the alien for the orphan and for the widow, in order that Yahweh your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive tree, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. When you gather grapes of your vineyard, you shall not go over it again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. This class of people who are disadvantaged in ways that are, are frankly, common to man. 
People who come into Israel from the outside, which according to Deuteronomy 4 was supposed to happen, people were supposed to look into Israel and go, wow, where did the wisdom that these people exercise come from? Look at how they operate as a society. Wow. No God is wise like the God of Israel. It's the first time the the term wisdom even appears in Scripture. When the nations look in Deuteronomy 4 and see the wisdom worked out, the wisdom of God worked out in the the practicing of just laws. You can actually see... um, this, a good example of this in uh, the book of Ruth, right? Women who have lost their husbands and have no children to care for them, even during a famine in Israel where God is kind and to the obedient and providing food in the midst of a famine, it's better to be in Israel than in Moab, where there's plenty of food. Widows stood a better chance in Israel in the midst of a famine to find somebody who was being rewarded by God for being obedient, and they did, Boaz, than to be in a prosperous pagan nation, Moab. And so these provisions that God's law, made, God's law made for those who were truly needy, this was wise. And you see that uh, quartet show up over and over in the Old Testament. The poor, the widow, the orphan, the foreigner. And they even had ways of determining who actually fit those categories. Um, We'll, we'll revisit a passage in the New Testament in the coming weeks. First Timothy 5 talks about widows who were widows indeed. This, to, to move on to point three in your outline, this is not the type of justice that is being promoted by and large in our day. The justice that's being called justice in the woke movement is actually a distortion. Social justice, as is being pushed in our day, is, is a distortion of this kind of justice. You're, you'll be hard-pressed, actually, to, to get a, a clear definition of what social justice even is from proponents of, of uh, woke theology, the woke movement, But certainly as they call for for certain forms of action, it's not this justice. And they're calling for the same things that the world is. Um, Just to highlight the distortion that is made by the woke movement, if I could pick the primary way that God's justice is perverted, um, the primary obligation that's leveraged, and really seems to be a part, always a part of what's being described by, as social justice, it's always some sort of overturning of systemic 
inequalities, systemic injustice. It's never enough to practice justice personally. It's a, it's a sticking point. If you, if you agreed all the way that this personal form of equity that you as a person should practice justice wherever you had the opportunity, that is in your home, in your workplace, in your uh, in, in family, in your neighborhood, that you should actually grant and withhold, uh, reward, punish where you have the authority to, right? In keeping with God's right law, if you only did that personally, somebody who's woke would say that's not enough. You actually need to work to ensure that there are just systems in place more broadly. Let me cite again Eric Mason, author of Woke Church. He says this, there's a system of corruption that snares minorities in a trap. <clears throat> Excuse me, that, that's the second definition, uh, the second quote. You have the first quote up? Thank you. As exiles in this wor- world, he says, speaking of the church, we must see ourselves as incarnational missionaries in the world for justice. Since we are children of God, We must be peacemakers. We can't be peacemakers and ignore injustice, particularly ignoring systemic injustice. You can see how he's making a stretch. He's stringing together biblical principles like peacemaking and justice and trying to tie it all together to to obligate Christians to give their specific attention to overturning systemic injustices. And then he puts more of his cards on the table saying this, there's a system of corruption that snares minorities in a trap. The church of Jesus Christ must get involved with these challenges facing black men. At its core, this is what it means to be woke. The church is supposed to resolve the issues, in in this context, he's talking about incarceration, facing black men. That's your obligation, Christian, to figure out and fix black men being incarcerated at a higher rate than other people groups. You're thinking, I didn't know that. that, that that was my obligation. So practicing justice personally, wherever you are, apparently is not enough. This really burdens the church uh, by all the issues that affect men and women. And in this conversation, you'll hear, hear it come up. Uh, people will appeal to the doctrine of Imago Dei, the image of God. People are created in the image of God. They have dignity. We have to make sure that they are treated with the dignity that ought to be given to image bearers. That is a a clever way of appealing to something that is biblical, the, the image of God doctrine. And rather than going to specific texts of scripture 
and drawing out implications about the image of God from specific texts of Scripture. Let me just appeal to something I know all Christians love. I mean, what Christian is going to say, everybody's not made in the image of God? That was a claim uh, in the past. Nobody's going to say that today. So then let me just drive a, a truckload of my personal preferences and implications for that doctrine through the image of God that I know you adhere to and, and then obligate you to doing X, Y, and Z. Be careful of vague general appeals to a doctrine disconnected from specific passages of Scripture. That is, that is a quick way of going astray. We're about out of time. Next week, what I want to do is take specific instances of what has happened over the past several years, um, specific uh, situations and claims being made, highly publicized events even that have taken place in our country. And I want to apply biblical standards from the Old and New Testament, biblical standards of justice to those things and just see what God's word has to say about them. How does God's word tell us to respond to black men being killed by white officers or various, uh, various people groups being disproportionately represented in, in certain areas? God's word actually has something to say about that. And so as we open it, we'll gain clarity where we don't have it on those things. God, thank you so much again uh, for your word. You were certainly under no obligation to speak to us. And yet you can only speak clearly. You can't do anything but speak clearly where you intend to reveal yourself. And so we... We just remind ourselves that you are worthy of our worship for being a just God, for being an impartial God, and so wisely, so thoroughly laying out your standards of justice for us in Scripture. I pray for Grace Bible Church that you would strengthen us in discerning these things, that you would reveal to us perhaps where we've fallen short in practicing these things well, that repentance would be a part of our response where we must repent, and that Grace Bible Church would excel still more in displaying for the world how your justice ought to look in this world. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.